inflation above 5% for three consecutive months. Well, if you round up to 4.99 in May, I'm talking about 2021, but there was a recent moment in American history when it was absolutely above 5% for three consecutive months, even four months almost. And that was 2008. And that's not a moment in time when you consider that there's this surplus of money flooding the economy, 2008. We're gonna talk about what happened in 2008, if there are any, any analogies to present day, and where we think inflation may be heading with Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm great, Emil. Always happy to talk about inflation that isn't inflation. People, Mr. Rudy Havenstein, the the president of the Reichsbank uh, from uh, 19, in the, 19, the 1920s, not the 2020s. <laughs> yes, in the 1920s, a huge Twitter personality, even though he died many years ago. Uh, says he always cringes when he hears you say that inflation isn't taking place. We're going to expand on that. We don't want Mr. Rudy to be upset with us. We're going to talk about what you mean, Jeff, and we're going to be using an essay that was posted today, today, August 13th. This recording is on August 13th. Jeff, on Twitter, people have asked me to say what date the recording's taking place. August 13th, 2021 the essays at real clear markets there is so much too much just enough the same by jeffrey p snyder and we start out in 2008 when we did have those three consecutive months it was the summer of 2008 and people were worried about inflation and jeff you won't believe it you won't believe it guess what i've got here <laughs> the wall street journal is that you may think whatever Monday, August 4th, 2008, Jeff. What are the chances? Why would I have this? I don't know. The week ahead, the Federal Reserve. Two officials, including one who currently votes on the rate-setting FOMC, indicated ahead of the June meeting a desire to raise rates immediately. Several others since then have signaled an interest in tightening policy before long, to address higher inflation and the risk of a price spiral. This is 2008, August. Summer, Mo yeah, it blows your mind, right? I'll just, I'll give them a little bit of credit because it does says here that most officials, while still concerned about inflation risks, are more worried about restoring stability to the financial system to prevent more threats to economic growth. The summer of 2008, Jeff, inflation, Europe, the FOMC, what was happening? Yeah, remember, we already talked about Europe. The European Central Bank had actually increased. They did go ahead with their benchmark increase in early July that summer. So, you know, yeah, there was some concern. But if you read the transcripts, as I have, unfortunately, sadly, you know, pitifully, I've read them all. And I can tell you these people were actually very, I mean, they were cautiously optimistic, but more optimistic than cautious because at that time, remember, oil was $140 some odd dollars a barrel, and it would seem like, Commodity prices, at the, at the very least, were saying, as now people can relate, that there might be something inflationary to this. And if we fix this, this, this little financial problem that seems to be going on in subprime mortgages, if we get that right, that really could unleash you know, a tidal wave of inflationary excessiveness and pressures. And so many central banks started to believe after Bear Stearns 
they got that right. That little subprime mortgage thing, okay, it knocked Bear Stearns out of the box, but that was basically the extent of it. And they began in the summer of 2008 to look forward to maybe completely avoiding the recession entirely, even though it had already begun, but they thought they might have completely avoided the recession and that the downside risks to the quote unquote financial system were being mitigated by successful monetary policies and all sorts of you know sentimental smoke and mirrors. And then turning their attention toward inflation, taking their eye way off the ball and, and looking at something, looking at everything in that, in that respect. With our interview with Daniel Want of Prerequisite Capital a few months ago, he mentioned that there's a hierarchy in these markets. Commodity markets, very important, important signals. But bond markets, more priority, better analysis, better sense of what's happening, and that commodity markets have and can get ahead of themselves. Bond markets, sovereign bonds, U.S. Treasury bills. Jeff, I'm going to pull up a graph from 2008 that disagreed with commodity markets and the FOMC and the European Central Bank. Tell us what we were seeing here. Treasury bills, one of our favorite instruments to obsess about. It's, you know, the bill market, the front end of the yield curve, because Treasury bills are, of course, completely they're always on the run so they're the best of the best you know treasury is already the best 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 repo collateral best any collateral out there and treasury bills the best of the best of the best and you can see you know in in the um when you get to the summer of 2008 what you find is that as all of this inflation stuff was going on you can't really see it on the monthly chart but in especially in july 2008 what you find is that the four-week T-bill was trading significantly less than the federal funds rate and the federal funds target. And that's important because the four-week Treasury bill is sort of a monetary equivalent. It's the closest monetary equivalent to something like federal funds or repo or anything like that. So you would expect, and throughout history up until 2007, the four-week Treasury bill rate would be would by and large follow along federal funds and the federal funds target LIBOR and all these other things demonstrate a very clear relationship correlation and hierarchy that made it seem like the fed was in charge of all these money markets when in really it wasn't and as those things started to break down post august of 2007 we get to 2008 while the cpis were through the roof you know inflation looked like it was five percent and better in the in those places in july 2008 the, tre- the four-week Treasury bill rate was substantially, as I said, substantially below the target. At one point, I think it was July 11th, 2008, the four-week T-bill yield was about 1.38%. And at the time, the Fed's target was two. So it was 62 basis points below target, which should have been setting off all sorts of alarm bells because you're thinking, why on earth in July 2008 would Treasury bill yields be 62 basis points below the federal funds target? It's not that the Fed controls the rate, but that's where, you know, in, in normal, in, if, if everything was becoming normal, we would expect the T-bill rate to be more like the federal funds target, at least much closer to it than where it had been. And again, we're talking about Treasury bills, we're talking about collateral, and if the price is that high to, 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 to bring the yield so far down below, that can only mean ex, you know, ex, excessive demand for bills, which relates to potential collateral shortage. And that maybe not you know, a huge sh- a shortage in July 2008, but participants in these vast money markets that span the entire world looking ahead and saying, 
I'm not so optimistic here. I may want to hoard bills now in case something really does start to go wrong. And that's really the, what the contrast in 2008 was. Here you have the bill market saying one thing, then you have other bills like Bill Dudley at the FOMC <laughs> saying quite the contrary. And you know, yes, they kept saying we're cautiously optimistic, but they also were very optimistic. They were becoming more optimistic and more, more concerned about inflation, uh, not just in Europe, but also in the United States, as you just pointed out in the Wall Street Journal article. Yeah, so was the 2% target in place all year long, Jeff, in 2008? No, that was the uh, post-Bear Stearns target. So the post 2%, February. that's where they brought it down from late 2007 into uh, March 2008. And then, you know, getting all the Bear Stearns stuff, they brought the, the federal funds target down to 2%. Where they left it, it would stay at 2% all the way through September. So 2% they thought was enough of a federal funds, you know, enough of a drop in interest rates that it would cushion the economy, cushion the financial system just by lowering the federal funds target without paying attention to the fact that, as I, as I just said, treasury bill rates were substantially below. And at the same time, three-month LIBOR and other LIBOR rates were substantially higher. So you had unsecured markets saying shortage of funds, shortage of dollars outside the United States offshore, and then treasury bills, prices sky high, shortage of collateral everywhere. I mean, it was so, it, these were bright red flashing warnings through the summer of 2008 that should have gotten everyone's attention except for the fact that central these central bankers aren't really central bankers they're a bunch of economists but jeff here on july 24th 2008 you quote one mr bill dudley former chief economist for goldman sachs phd in economics from berkeley a wonderful institution quote and we're talking about collateral now I also want to point out that for the banks that don't have enough collateral today, so they know about the bills, Jeff, they know about them, that doesn't mean that they don't have collateral available. It is just that the collateral hasn't been pledged at the window, Jeff Snyder. So the bottom line is that we don't think the over-collateralization requirement is very constraining. To use economic terms, the shadow price of collateral is pretty close to zero as far as we can tell. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a it's little confused. It's a little economic yeah. talk, Jeff. Can you translate? Yeah, it to yeah there's a, we have to unpack quite a lot here. But just, you know, spoiler alert, it's another one of those Bill Dudley statements that will very shortly blow up in his face. And it will blow up in his face in an absolute spectacular fashion where we, the public, have to pay for their idiocy, their incompetence, and their inability to understand things as, as they were going on. So let's, okay, July 24th, 2008, the Fed held a conference call, one of those emergency conference calls to discuss altering their, pro their monetary programs because they were hearing noises from the banking system. And they were thinking, oh, a bunch of crybabies. We fixed Bear Stearns for you. What the hell do you want? So they said there's two proposals on the table that required not just the FOMC, but also the Federal Reserve Board to, to vote. And they got all these people together and they talked about it. One was extending the maturities on TAF auctions. And the other was this, option arrangement on the TSLF, which was the term securities lending facility, which is essentially securities lending and transformations that private security and money dealers do themselves. And what, the, what was really concerning the banking system that were knocking on the Fed's door was the banking system said, hey, you know, you may not have noticed, but we noticed the fact that at quarter ends, there does seem to be these real severe bottlenecks. Oh, by the way, you might have noticed that 
when did this when did this Bear Stearns fiasco happen? Well, it was getting into that quarter end period in March, and so you know, as Bill Dudley even said, if you know, the question we get asked most is, what are we doing about helping banks get through quarter end periods? And so here they are talking about, well, let's extend TAF auctions so that you know banks know they have a, a liquidity outlet um, over any quarter or year end period, and let's also do this TSLF option, which gives banks the ability to swap lower tier collateral for treasuries and some we don't need to get into the details of it but it was essentially a basic securities transformation transaction so you, and the one thing you said Mill, is absolutely right they know about this stuff but that doesn't mean they understand the full full implications of it nor the consequences when these things go wrong or really how they fit into the overall system they're basically responding to re responding to feedback from the banking system, which was telling them, as you know, we talked about the Lehman emails. The banks were all saying, look, you guys can be optimistic and cautiously optimistic and think things are going fine. But down here inside the monetary system, which you guys pay no attention to, we're still really concerned. And we're really concerned about a couple of things. Number one, collateral. And number two, quarter ends. And wouldn't that just be the case September of 2008, two weeks before the quarter end, what happens? You had the intersection, the violent intersection of a collateral shortage at, a, at one of these calendar bottlenecks, which rendered all of these stupid monetary programs, you know, the TSLF, TAFs, any of these number, any of these initialized programs were completely, utterly worthless and helpless against the looming crisis. And the point we're trying to make here, Bill Dudley says, well, I guess this collateral quarter end stuff might be a big deal. So let's conjure some kind of program to get, make these banks happy because we think the shadow price of collateral must be zero. And that was absolutely patently false. And you could have just looked on Bloomberg on that day and known that because the price of Treasury bills were telling you the shadow price of excessive collateral must have been through the roof. Because that's the reason why banks were hoarding treasury bills in advance of trouble they thought was much higher probability than, than the, anybody at the Fed did. So it's again, it's, it's a, one of those perfect episodes where the, where the you know, incompetent Keystone cops, Federal Reserve people are just, we're more concerned about the CPI than collateral and, and seasonal bottlenecks. And then what happens in just a couple months later? It's the, the collateral and seasonal bottlenecks that conspire to essentially uh, destroy the economic system or nearly just or at least knock it off of its axis so that you know we did it was essentially a permanent shock one from which we have yet to recover and by and our other point here is that even though this was such a big deal and even though they got everything wrong even today hardly anybody knows these things everybody has been dazzled by qe when in fact qe doesn't really have much to do with anything here your listing of all that alphabet soup reminded me of an early, very early, original David Parkins illustration in 2000, March 2020, when uh, we did the same thing. All these alphabet soup programs, but of course they're just looking the wrong way. So wonderful, you've got a cape, but you're looking the wrong way. Okay, we're focused on inflation. We talked about 2008, this summer. Well, let's, you know, the epilogue to the 2008 story in terms of inflation is obviously those 5% CPIs disappeared really quick. And why did they disappear? Where did those 5% CPIs go? 
They went. They were subsumed by the deflationary money system, which was already exhibiting those signs and those potential while those 5% CPIs were happening. The bill market, just the, just the Treasury bill market told you, sorry, Bill Dudley, that there was con- collateral concerns, grave collateral concerns being expressed, which, which were representing an enormously high potential for deflation, not inflation. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. Yes, 2008 was an extreme example of the, those deflationary consequences, but they come in different variations and gradations. So it doesn't always have to be a 2008 type, uh, 2008 level of event, of deflationary event that will undercut the inflation, the apparent inflation at, the, at any given time. Bill Dudley and inflation versus treasury bills, 2008. Now we've got another, we've got a rematch, Jeff, it's Treasury bills again, but this time the challenger is Bill Simon, and he's not an economist, Jeff. He's a person who's got his fingers in the real economy, okay? So this time it's going to be a serious match, and I think the U.S. Treasury bill market have met their match. U.S. Division Chief of Walmart, the CEO of Walmart for the United States, Bill Simon, quote, we're seeing cost increasing we're seeing cost increases starting to come through at a pretty rapid rate. Inflation going to be serious. Now pull the rug out from under us, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, you would think that that was something Bill Simon said or or any CEO of Walmart said yesterday, right? I mean, this surely was printed recently. Yes. Except no, this quote was taken from the head of Walmart. I mean, Walmart, as you pointed out, this guy's not an economist. He's the head of Walmart. So obviously he knows something about the retail business. And since Walmart has made its business on being sensitive to prices, surely this guy cannot possibly be wrong about inflation, right? I mean, who would we turn to other than Bill, the guy in the head of Walmart in the United States? If we're worried about retail and consumer price and all these, we would obviously, t- we obviously want to talk to Bill Simon. And yes. the answer is no, you wouldn't, huh? because that quote wasn't today or yesterday or even recent. It was March of 2011. He said consumer prices are about to be very, very big and that we should be really concerned about inflation, except over the decade following his quote, hardly anybody was concerned about inflation except for the fact that it was continuously missing. So maybe Bill Simon's not the guy we want to talk to either. But you know who we could have talked to at that time? U.S. Treasury bill. I've got another graph this time, and again, it's monthly. Forgive me, Jeff. I've got 2010, 2011, but we can see 2000. Now you're going to force me to describe the daily movements. Well, well, basically. Yeah, I think you did this on purpose. Forgive me. No, so yeah, you're right. Again, here we have another episode. And if you can think back to 2011, you know, Bill Simon's view was hardly controversial at all. In fact, it was probably the mainstream view. Everybody was thinking. You know, what the hell is going on? Prices seem to be going through there. I remember, you know, you'd go to a fast food restaurant and they'd only give you one napkin because everybody was so worried about the price of paper, for example, because inflation was was so out of control. Prices, this price spike and every, you know, it's going it, to obviously if the CPI is up around 4% as it was in 2011, it's going to continue because these things are never temporary or transitory. That's what we keep hearing. If prices go up for any short period of time, it's extrapolated into 1970 style. But yet, you get, as you pointed out, Emil, what we're really talking about here, there was trouble in bills, treasury bills. Uh, and it started, it started before 2011, where you had in, in uh, 
December, November and December, especially December 2010, you had this curious drop in bill yields when? Shortly before the quarter end, shortly before the year end in December of 2010, a drop in bill yields that was out of line from where uh, bill prices had been had been uh, had been previously. But it didn't it wasn't just that, though. That was sort of the prelude, because as you get into right around the time that Bill Simon was talking about inflation, it was sort of as if someone had yanked the rug out from under the bill yields, which meant prices through the roof. In fact, the bill yields would get down to around zero, one basis point, a couple basis, you know, a couple basis points around May and June of 2011, which was, again, alarm bells. What is going on here? Because this is not this is not what we should be seeing from a healthy monetary environment that would be leading to an inflation. And you know, again, when we talk about inflation, we're not talking about temporary changes in a few prices or another. We're talking about broad based rise in consumer prices that is sustained over a prolonged period of time. And the reason for that broad base, as well as being sustained, is because of monetary excesses. Inflation, real inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And if you don't have the monetary environment for that to happen, you're not going to get inflation. So just looking at bills in the early 2011, as these things were unfolded, CPIs were still high, around 4%. They weren't like 2008, but they were still relatively high. As they were still relatively high, the bill market was saying, it's not going to last. There's deflation. There's too much deflationary potential being exhibited right now, today, let alone in the, in the uh, near, or near intermediate future or long-run future. You, you summarized what was happening in 2008 and 2011 despite the inflationary concerns very well in this these two sentences so i'm going to read them there were two major factors which contributed much to this unhappy yet predictable set of deflationary outgrowths the first what had been building since early 2010 in the form of dealer risk aversion feeding into reduced securities lending activities thereby shrinking the systemic collateral multiplier Earlier, we talked about 2008. We quoted Mr. Dudley. Now we're going to quote another member of the FOMC here. Was he a... Yes, he was a... He was part he of was there. Bill, he was speaking He was Bill there. Dudley's successor, actually. Mr. Sack. Now we're talking about June 2011. Here comes Mr. Sack. Some market observers are concerned that the looming debt ceiling is going to impose substantial squeeze in the supply of treasury bills. So again, they know about this bill stuff. As the treasury attempts to maintain its coupon issuance while its ability to borrow is limited, they believe that treasury bill yields and general collateral repo rates could be driven negative in response, potentially inducing a number of unusual market issues. What is this telling well, us about inflation and bills? Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, again, this is a, like Bill Simon's quote. This quote from Brian Sachs sounds like it could have been pulled out of today or yesterday or this week. Yes. It's eerily familiar because we, we keep repeating these problems. So, at, you know, getting back to what you just said, they know about bills. So what? Apparently they know there's something going on in bills, but yet here we are repeating the same things over and over again. And the point I was making about 2011 is that you had this pre-existing collateral problem in dealer risk aversion, creating a lower multiplier to begin with. And then along comes the Treasury. And, the, you know, we can't fault Treasury for this because Treasury has to do 
what its job is, which is to manage U.S. government's debt. And if the, if they have a debt ceiling that they can't meet, then they have to do these things. They have to refund bills, for example. But you have in the monetary system, in terms of effective monetary conditions, that is a restriction, a negative factor on money. So those two things combined at the worst possible time. You have dealer risk aversion, and then a shortage of treasury bills leading to the summer of 2011, which was very nearly, very nearly, people don't appreciate how nearly, a repeat of 2008. And it was devastating. We may not have noticed much here in the United States, but around the rest of the world, they sure do, especially in Europe, because there was a re-recession in Europe. But in many ways, 2011, as you know, you, Emil, you and I have talked about this a lot, 2011 was sort of the final nail in the coffin. And what we're talking about is some, in some ways, the primary final nail in the coffin of the recovery, because it was another repeat episode of collateral shortage where the Fed knows about bills, but doesn't do a damn thing to offset it. And it leaves the system so short of collateral that as soon as it ran into just the, the tiniest little spark, it became so much more disruptive than maybe it ever should have been. And it, it was just it and under those kinds of conditions, those kinds of situations, with dealers and bank and the whole monetary system aware that this is how it is, you can really start to understand why from that point forward, we've been in a consistent deflationary environment. Because monetarily speaking, which is what inflation really is, this is this has haunted the system ever since. Two episodes in close succession of largely the same thing, with policymakers talking out their mouth one way and the system going in another completely different way, naked to all of these problems. Yeah, deflation seems to be the the, the most rational outcome of all of this, not inflation. And again, notice what we haven't talked about: bank reserves, QE, money printing. In fact, the quote I always love from August of 2011 is also from Brian Sack, where he says, I should, hap- I should note that all of this dramatic illiquidity we're seeing in repo markets and global dollar markets is happening, even though there's $1.6 trillion in bank reserves in the system. So, yes, there's another thing. The Fed knows that bank reserves do not necessarily lead to functional liquidity. And I argue all the time that it doesn't, lead, doesn't contribute much at all to functional liquidity. And that's really the problem here. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon, but our view of inflation is colored by this textbook approach, which says, don't fight the Fed. Look at bank reserves. Look at QE. Look at the Fed's balance sheet. When in reality, the only thing that matters is all the stuff that's outside the Fed off its balance sheet in these shadow money places like collateral. Collateral is one of the most basic primary elements of shadow money. And it's not really that shadow, right? I mean, as Bill Dudley said in 2008, the shadow price of collateral. Well, you don't, it's right there in the T bill yields. Mm-hmm. It's actually not that shadow at all. If you see the T bill yields behaving oddly, you can, there's a direct implication for what, you know, what, what must be happening in these quote unquote shadow spaces. Let us fast forward then to 2021, present day. You've said it a couple of times that there are so many analogies. We've had the three consecutive months of inflation above 5% or nearly so. What was it? 4.99 in May yeah. with CPI headline numbers. We also have the, we have the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, pulling bills out of circulation. At least earlier this year, there was talk of that, right? And so let us turn not to another bill, but the bill that was right this whole time, U.S. Treasury bills 
And again, they're warning us. But in your paper, Jeff, you say, hey, it's not warning that it's going to be exactly the same, 2008, 2011, but it's warning what? That something's not right. It's, yeah, the, some, it's really what we're talking about here with the bills is deflationary potential. What the bill prices are saying is that collateral demand, the sh put it in Dudley's terms, the shadow price of collateral must be exceedingly high because uh, money market participants are hoarding treasury bills. Now, yeah, I know people in 2021 have said, oh, that's just too much money. That's bank reserves. The Fed is flooding. The TGA is being drawn down, all of that kind of crap. You know, money market funds are flush and they're looking for places to put it. Yeah, that's that's true. But as we've said, you know, when you compare bill yields that are below the IRP, for example, that's the same kind of thing as bill yields being below the federal funds target in 2008. Not to the same degree, but it's an indication of collateral demand over and above what, quote unquote, should be happening in the bill market. And as you're showing here, the four week Treasury bill that's down, you know, almost a full basis point below five. That's a clear indication of a collateral scarcity problem, which is deflationary potential being traded in this most liquid marketplace, which means that the, the view from inside the system is that collateral is such an issue that the, the, the four-week bill yield, not just the four-week bill yield, but some of the other, you know, the eight-week, the uh, three-month, and at, at times the six-month bill too, they trade at such low yields below the RRP, which is an expression of this collateral scarcity. And therefore that means in just this one case, and there are others, this is just one part of the overall whole, the system is exhibiting deflationary potential that is quite serious. And from that, we can, we can interpret a forward condition that is not inflationary. Like 2008, like 2011, these CPI spikes will be transitory because these monetary problems are likely to be too excessive to overcome. Earlier, you mentioned that 2011 was the final nail in the coffin for, as I like to think of it, advanced economy money centers creating our monetary order, our the surplus of credit, cash, and collateral. There was some thought that perhaps emerging markets had detached, delinked, but then we had that next crisis, 2014 through 16, which that proved that was the final nail in their coffin, that they're not going to escape either which brings us to an epilogue of our story. 2014, July 24th, USA Today, Walmart US CEO Bill Simon steps down. Let me read a few sentences here. As it, as it grapples with sluggish store sales, Walmart said Thursday that its US CEO is stepping down and is being replaced by the head of the company's Asia operations. The the move comes just weeks after Simon made fairly dire comments about consumers and the economy in a July 8th interview on CNBC. Referring to unemployment numbers, Simon said it was, quote, going to take a while for those numbers to balance out and singled out low and middle income consumers as being, quote, still pretty challenged. Sales in the USA have been lackluster for Walmart which reported its smallest growth in quarterly sales in nearly five years in May. The company, like most retail, retailers, blamed severe winter weather in the Northeast. Jeff, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you I think said Bill finally learned that, you know, monetary it, restriction, deflationary pressures translates into the real economy, as John Maynard Keynes had said in the 1920s, almost a century ago, 
deflationary potential, deflationary outcomes come out worst in the labor market. John he, Q. Public. But he knew Walmart about it. Shoppers. He was he knew about that. He knew about the the Walmart shoppers were struggling, and he said so on CNBC. And the head of Walmart didn't appreciate it, but he was right. Twenty, you said 2011, 2012 yeah, was Emil, a mere. That's two- our challenge, right? We're, you know, Bill Simon found out about the Walmart shoppers, and Bill Dudley says something about TSLF, and there's going quarter ends and collect. There's all of these dots that are just floating out there that the economics textbook doesn't really tell you much about. What we're all we're doing is we're connecting these things together and saying yes. This this Bill Dudley thing in 2008 is related. It's absolutely related to the Bill Simon getting canned in 2014 via all of this other stuff that you don't even know about or you don't hear about because we're all ta- we're all supposed to think that money is easy and the Fed controls everything with the flip of a switch or the, the or the uh, uh, increasing the number at the end of the letters Q and E. That's you know that's not what happens. That's not what takes place. And just in terms of inflation it's even more important to understand what goes on in reality in the monetary system. Otherwise, you're going to be fooled by these CPIs into thinking they're more than they are, as the European Central Bank was in 2008. And by the way, again, in 2011, there were two rate hikes in 2011, not just one. So, yeah, maybe under T-bills, T-bill yields is a very good place to start because I said, you know, yes, most of the stuff does take place in the shadows, but T-bill yields are is probably the, the the tip of the iceberg that is sticking up out of the water and it's a good place to say okay are are we really seeing what we're seeing are these cpis really representing monetary true monetary inflation or is there something else going on here we're going to talk about that next in part 2 we're going to we're going to look at the actual cpi results we're going to break them down and see if we can learn anything does it suggest Does it seem as if this is going to continue further? Or can we already see in the CPI numbers that there's a change taking place, an inflection? Inflation in the United States has hit 5% for three months in a row. And yet Jeff Snyder, head of global research for Alhambra Partners, recently wrote a blog post that said... There are hints of transitory in the numbers. Here's the title. Inflation more than hints transitory. More than hints, Jeff. We are going to ask you to explain how can this be. August 11th, 2021 is when you wrote this. And we're going to start out with the non-seasonally adjusted full index, which increased by 5.37% year over year for July. And... Where do you want to go from there? What, how did your analysis progress from there? Well, what more than hints at transitory is that it, the numbers exhibit already some transitory nature. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, again, let's, let's state our premise perfectly so people can understand where we're coming from. This is not inflation. Inflation is not a temporary price deviation because we've seen these time and again. As we just talked about in our previous, uh, previous uh, segment, the CPI had hit three, 5% three months in a row, almost 5% four months in a row in the summer of 2008. Again, in 2000, late 2010, 2011, the CPI was relatively high. Nobody would confuse those periods with inflationary periods. And the reason is because they weren't. You can see prices deviate and go up and down all over the place. 
And you can have these temporary uh, periods where the CPI is high, and it still doesn't mean it's inflation because inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And if the monetary system is overabundant to the point that it's causing excessiveness in consumer prices, what we would then expect to see is a broad base, which means more than just a few prices, a broad base sustained increase in consumer prices for more than a couple months here or there, even, even a year. We would expect it to see what's happened year over year, which I understand most people are saying, yeah, we get it. That's what we're that's what we're expecting is going to happen for 2021 and 2022 and 2023. All of these years are what we're saying is this is the beginning, the start of a period where inflation is going to be it's going to be huge for a long time. And what we're saying is, as we've just went through in the previous segment, these historical episodes is no, that's not likely to be the case. Because to have that sustained inflation year after year from 2021 into 2022, you would actually have to have monetary excessiveness, which we're telling you the system itself is telling us that that's such a small probability. The deflationary potential is so high that it's reasonable to conclude that this is kind of it, that once this temporary price deviation runs its course, we're going to go back into the same disinflationary quote-unquote puzzle as we had been in since 2000, well, really going back to the first financial crisis. Uh, let's see. Okay, yes, bills are telling us that inflationary potential, not great. But if the consumer price basket was broadly increasing, well, then we would have to reconsider. We'd have to say, hmm, maybe maybe something else is happening. And in these most recent uh, most recent report, you point out that it's energy and autos that is really supercharging these numbers. Jeff, I assumed it was broad-based. I think everyone watching is assuming that it's a broad-based increase in consumer prices. Tell us, you saw just energy and autos or other things, but really being driven by those two. Yeah, it's other things. Again, you know, there's two de two pieces of the definition for inflation here. We just talked about the one which is sustained over a long period of time as a mo as a as a consequence of monetary excessiveness. The other one is broad based. It's not to just the food prices go up and nothing else does. It's not just that you know prices for healthcare goes up, but not really much else does. It's where the prices of food, healthcare, and autos and everything else goes up all at the same time. What we're seeing, I wish, you know, the PCE deflator is much better because they have the trim mean version of it, where you can really see the differences here. But by and large, you know, yes, consumer prices are much higher than they were last year. Some of that is base effects. Some of that is legitimate price increases in somewhat of a broad-based fashion. But by and large, this, this spike, spikiness of the, the uh, last couple months is due to autos and energy. The autos in particular, especially used car prices, are up something like 40-some percent year over year. Even new car prices in the CPI were up six-something percent, which was the highest in almost 40 years. So those are really pushing the CPI, whereas other prices, yes, they're up, but they're not up as much. And then you have, of course, oil and energy and gasoline, which people are very well aware of. What about the CPI core rate, Jeff? That suggests a slightly different picture, doesn't it? Yeah, so if we start to step back away from these these narrow channels where the CPI is most extreme, we can start by stripping out food and energy prices, which you know, people say, well, you can't live without food or gasoline. Yeah, we get it. But the, again, what we're trying to analyze here is inflation according to its definition. And it's not just a definition for academic terms. 
It's definitions that tell you whether or not this stuff is going to be sustained. Because if it can't meet these definitions, then it's not really inflation, which means it's not really going to be sustained. So we're, it sounds like we're being economists here who are actually pulling these pieces apart so that we can get at what we think is the truth. And so if we start stepping back away from these narrow components that are driving the headline spikes, start with the core inflation rate, which strips out food and energy, you know, the, the monthly change in the seasonally adjusted index for July was relatively high, but not nearly as high as it has been. And so mm-hmm. there's already an indication that, okay, maybe when we get away from food and energy prices, that still has autos, that still has used cars and used cars in it, but it's not as robust in, as the headline had been. 4.4%. I don't know what I, I need to drink. I'm having a tough time speaking. Yeah, it, or maybe you've been, you've, maybe it's there's too much rum flowing from Jamaica. I mean, you're really close to highly unlikely. Jamaica there, and highly unlikely too much rum. Four point four seven percent core CPI in June, four point two seven in July. Rate of change. Hedge Eye, Keith McCullough, they can't stop talking about it. It's so important to them. They always make that point. Yeah. It's the rate of change that's Second very important. Second derivative, gamma, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it, it, is, it is an important so, Yeah, 4.27 is still high, hmm. but it's substantially less than what – it's significantly less than what it was the, the month before. So rate of change is changing, maybe changing. Of course, you never want to go off of one month. But we're not going off of one month, as we're going to see here. Yes. So you have the headline CPI that was down two basis points from where it was in June. You have the core CPI down 20 basis points from where it was in June. And then we get to other components that don't have that, that uh, used car, new car, com- new car uh, bucket that's really, really driving the CPI. And you start to really see transitory develop. I have... So I have pulled up the seasonally adjusted month over month change in inflation, core inflation. Then this graph really shows it, Jeff, doesn't it? It starts. I think this is where it starts. And I think what's also important is what I've labeled there is you can see what's really going on here. You can see why prices get pushed up as much as they hit. We did this last year. People have forgotten already, but we did this last year in miniature when the first round of helicopter payments from the treasury hit the hit people's pocketbooks some of that got spent some of that got immediately released in the economy added add to that the you know the first initial phase of reopening after the covid overreactions and suddenly you had this positive force but it didn't last very long because why would it it's it's a one, it was a one time shot in the arm you know government paying people because they were harmed by a recession that was nothing of their own making, certainly not their fault. But that's not the same as economic stimulus. It was a one-time, a, a one-time event, and the the necessary uh, results from it were transitory or temporary. Now we're seeing the same thing again happen early 2000, uh, 2021, especially in March when that second helicopter payment really hit. What happens? We see the same thing again. Prices spike, activity, all that stuff goes up in the goods economy. But then what? Once the once the helicopter payment starts to recede into history, why would we expect it to continue to have lasting effects when we just we already saw last year that it didn't, and we already know underlying the real economy is it's really not that great. So there really isn't a, there really isn't a situation where we expect anything other than temporary effects. Now, there's another measure that you very rarely hear about, but in this article, you say that it's another core 
measure and it services less rent of shelter and you describe it as important very strong compelling indication jeff i'm showing the graph right now tell us why is this important compelling very strong indication what we were just talked about we're trying to get at the the in the uh, the real substance of the economy not away from you know these 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 narrow channels where prices are really are going up so we get away from the goods economy get away from used car prices for example we get away from energy and start looking at cpi services which is a key component rate about underlying inflation potential and it really does exhibit that transitory um, you know, the, the kind of a snake-like uh, pattern in the chart, which shows you the month of over a month changes pretty much. Hey, it's not just this month where we're seeing transitory pressures starting to, 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 you know, these transitory things starting to fade. It's actually for the third straight month where outside of autos and energy and gasoline and food, the underlying, the rest of the global, the rest of the U.S. economy is starting to fall back into that same disinflationary state that it had been in for many, many years before. You said global there. It slipped out. We're going to talk yeah, about the global out. picture in a second. <laughs> and I definitely, that's a key point. But I wanted to double check if this is right, Jeff, because this is really hard to believe. I think maybe it's a typo. Quote, rising only 0.09% compared to June and we're talking about, again, CPI services excluding rent. This wasn't just the lowest single month increase since January. It was also one of the lowest single month increases, period. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, it's not. You don't usually see that um, small of a monthly change. And if you go back to the wow. chart, you can see it on the chart. Yes. So, yeah, July, outside of used cars and energy and food and all these other things, price, price of the price environment isn't no isn't anywhere near as um accelerating robust whatever adjective you want to throw in there as it had been over those couple months you know march and into really april was the peak and then may and june what we're seeing is what you exactly what we had expected you can go back to the podcast history here we kept saying that we thought this would be transitory and lo and behold, it's playing out in exactly that way. Not just markets, not just you know treasury yields and global bond yields, but we're seeing this, this play out in the actual inflation data, just as you would expect it to play out. Here's a key sentence that summarizes this article in the show. Combined with continued deceleration, the farther out you get away from those effects and you start to see the trend develop more and more. Services less rent peaks in April the core also April, but breaks in July. And now the headline begins to break down from the cumulative quickening. So we, we've, we're seeing it. We think, okay, maybe in isolation, if we just saw just this data, we could say, well, we don't know yet, but we see treasury bills suggesting also a deceleration, a, a poor monetary condition. And earlier you said global, Jeff. What's happening in Europe, Japan, China, Britain? Are any of those countries signaling rip-roaring inflation? Or are they also corroborating the message we see out of Treasury bills and this inflection in CPI? Yeah, and that's, that's another indication that, um, that the U.S. consumer prices are being outliers, extreme outliers. As we said before, I think we've shown the graph before, if you graph um, the U.S. PCE deflator version of inflation against the European HICP 
version of inflation. Up until around February, March of this year, they had been very closely correlated. And then all of a sudden, U.S. prices, they just explode upward, whereas around the rest of the world, everybody's like, what inflation? Inflation? There's no inflation here. China, inflation never Dreadful. got more than 1.3%, yes. and now that's starting to decelerate in exactly the same fashion. The Japanese barely got to the plus sign. Um, they're still more negative than positive. And the Europeans, as I said, Europe, even with all of the base effects in their numbers, still only got to continent-wide, still only got to about 2.2% HICP, which is you know half the rate for the PCE deflator and less than half the rate of the CPI. So U.S. consumer prices, again, if we're if we're if we're coming up with a definition of inflation, sustained, the market says not much potential for it to be sustained. Broad-based, when we when we break down the data, it's not really so broad-based as maybe we we're led to believe. And then there's this global component to it, which is inflation is really a global monetary phenomenon, not a domestic U.S. dollar phenomenon. So if we're not seeing inflation come up in all these places around the world, it's another checkmark against the idea that inflation in the U.S. is going to be some sustained monster a la the great inflation of the 1970s. In other words, should inflation rates continue to play out as they have, each simply the predictable results of yes, transitory factors having their day and then fading away into ugly history from supply problems to base effects and mostly uncle sam these aren't permanent changes to the situation jeff earlier i mentioned britain and in part three we're going to discuss britain and their inflation situation but in a broader overview of how their central bank has functioned, worked, and the big, big, big change in 1998. The Bank of England, the old lady of Threadneedle Street. Jeff, did I get that right? Is that the nickname? Yeah, they used to, the headquarters used to be on Threadneedle Street in London, city of London. And, and wonderful history, weather vanes telling us whether the wind is going which way, and that means that the the barges are going to be coming up river and that you need money. It's a history that goes all the way back to 1694. Incredible. And so it's a glorious, full, rich history. And you make a provocative comment. You say that maybe, maybe one of the biggest changes in that 300-year history was in 1998. Tell us a little bit about what happened in 1998 and then the definitions that we're going to be defining and operating with during this show. Well, I think there's, you know, there's misconceptions that central banks are kind of like central banks. And, you know, the Federal Reserve has really since 1951 been perceived as this independent institution that just does its monetary policy business free from any kind of political interference or any other kind of interference, legal or otherwise, too. And there's this, you know, popular perception that the Federal Reserve model is simply what everybody else has done. And that's just not true. The Fed in many instances or many ways was kind of the the lone case, the lone ranger of independent central banks. And it wasn't until the 1990s that a lot of these other central banks in the era of the great moderation, the myth of Greenspan, the maestro, all this stuff said, we want to be like them. And they started to get, you know, the Bank of Japan was one in 1997's reforms. And the Bank of England actually was, started to gain more independence from the Chancellor of the Exchequer or the Treasury Department in the UK 
which was codified into the Bank of England uh, Reorganization Act of 1998, which essentially said, okay, we're going to give you some independence, not full independence, but we're going to grant you more independence than at any time over the last three centuries of your existence. We're going to be defining goal independent, instrument independent, and inflation nutter. We're going to start with goal independent, and you raise two names, Walter Badgett and Nut Wixell. Jeff, do you want to tell us anything about Nut Wixell? Because we've heard lots about Walter Badgett before. The first time I, I ever You're going to get a lot of angry comments from Scandinavians. <laughs> I think it's Newt. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um... That's okay. Well, I, I was going to hey, say... Pronun- pronunciations, you know, it's one of those one of those things that us Americans seem to have trouble with, you know, sort of the, the, uh, <laughs> the idea that we just pronounce things the way we do and the rest of the world can adjust to them. I'm glad I didn't call him Knut. They might have been spell. closer to it. Yes, yeah, so great... those are just you know they had ideas about what central banks are supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it. Newt Witzel more about interest rates, the natural rate of interest, things like that. Really, it's okay. What what is a central bank supposed to do? What is its job? You know, Walter Badgett said, "Well, lender of last resort. When money becomes tight, as you pointed out, when the weather vane changes and the trade, the vast uh, British trade fleet start you know floating up the Thames." You know, we have to supply money into the marketplace, more money than was there before. Otherwise, a shortage of money will cause a very real restriction on commerce. And we don't want that. That's the worst kind of thing that can develop. You know, John Maynard Keynes, greater evil. Deflation is by far the greater evil than inflation because it causes it causes economy not to happen. And so the central bank's job, according to Badgett, and using Newt Wixel's work as a guide is to, to try to, 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 to determine what is the relative condition in money markets, and then act on those relative conditions. Is money's tight? Is money loose? What should we do? And what, what we're talking about here is what is really a central bank supposed to do? And it's supposed to do something with money. I mean, everybody, everybody's, we're told that from the very beginning. Central bank, money printer, printing press, all of these things, currency, money supply. These are all, these are all the things that a central bank are identified with. And yet, in 1998, what we start to see out in the open with the Bank of England's reorganization is maybe not so much money. And also gold goal independence, maybe not so much either, because it appears to be that the Chancellor of the Exchequer was telling them what their inflation target should be. Yeah, and that's, that's quite okay, interesting. That's a good place to start. I mean, that was a fashion fad. It was a fad, really, of the 1990s. It's something that developed in Canada first, which was adopted in many other places around the world, which was, well... We got to do something. We got to. We got to. We got to. We got to attach our monetary policy to something to know how are we being successful. And already you should be thinking, wait a minute, why are we targeting inflation when money, Newt Wixel, money rates? I mean, why aren't you just targeting money? Isn't that your job? Isn't that what you're supposed? To? I mean, that's what we're being taught. That's what we've been taught all along. So even the fact that in the 1990s central banks were transitioning to inflation targets. It's an alarm bell. It's a light bulb going off in your head saying, why are central banks moving away from money and into more economic aggregates as the standards for measuring their policy effectiveness? And of course, we know the, the answer to that is because they don't do money. They, don't, they hadn't done money in decades by then. And so from the 80s into the 90s, these central banks were kind of groping around in the dark to try to figure out, well, we can't rely on money anymore because we don't know money. Money We've got to figure out some other way. And, and what is inflation? Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. 
So what they thought was, if we target inflation as sort of a tie our policies and real economic variables to inflation, that will tell us whether or not we're being successful, even though if you really think about it, we don't really know how it's working. We don't understand the details. So what we're saying is we'll start with our policy, we'll flush it down the system and see if it comes out the other end in the way we want it to. And that's really what inflation targeting was, was to say, we don't know what happens in between, but if the inflation stays near our target, we're gonna presume that we're, work, that we're being an effective central bank even though quite maddeningly, it's because we have no idea what's going on in the monetary system itself. And so already we're seeing central banks are no longer central banks. There's something else entirely. They couldn't identify, define, measure, or map money, credit, or collateral. So they wanted to see if they could do that for the output, inflation. And they had a team in the Bank of England that was put together, the MPC. And Jeff, as you said, that this is, you couldn't think of a better place to be in the world than London, the city of London, where you could reach into a deep pool, a reservoir of people who understand money, who trade money, who have been in markets for years, decades. And that's exactly what they didn't do. <laughs> I know, right? It's like, it's where else, in the yeah. London, where would you begin to identify, define, measure, and map money? But London. Euro dollar system, offshore, actual, do- I mean, all of these weird forms, you know, Greenspan's well, proliferation Berkeley. of products, London, that's exactly. MIT, that's Fred where Needle we need Street, to turn right to. Right on Fred Needle Street. And so what, it, yeah, you, as, you, as, you, as you deadpan there, Emil, that's exactly what they didn't do. What did so, they do? What is the MPC? Who's the NPC is part of the it's 1998 reorganization. The as part of the the yes, they didn't have goal independence. Let's go back a little bit. Goal independence was that the Chancellor of the Exchequer would still decide the inflation that they were going to target, the level of inflation they were going to target. But they were they were given what's called instrument independence, which was the Chancellor of the Exchequer would no longer tell them how to achieve that target. They were now free to use whatever designs they could possibly come up with in order to meet the sector's target. And that's really what, in order to do that, in order to come up with these, these various instruments, and spoiler alert, these are not monetary instruments, in order to come up with the, mon- the, come up with the instruments, the policy instruments to meet the exchequer's target, they created this Monetary Policy Committee, or MPC, which I believe, what is it, the, the governor of the Bank of England is the chair of the MPC. Then he has four of his deputies as four members. And then the, the exchequer nominates four outside members. So there's nine members on this, this MPC committee, which is in many ways nothing more than the FOMC at the Federal Reserve, except, you know, there's the different politics of it. Jeff, in, in popular culture, there's several several phrases and they all seem to rhyme together and they all have that same spirit flat earther birther a buffalo bills truther and now inflation nutter what is an inflation nutter what does it have to do with mervyn king and the mpc and actually i think it has more to do with what we've been talking about in the previous epi- or the previous segments of this episode which is the idea that we should focus only on inflation that monetary policy should just be focused, you know, inflation, 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 inflation. That's really what should uh, occupy any central banker's entire day and in their entire domain. 
what Mervyn King was saying is that no, there's there's more going. It's more complicated than that. And an inflation nutter is a policy which only focuses on the inflation rate or obsessively about an excessive high inflation rate. That monetary policy needs to be more broad based, more more maybe attached to the real economy in better ways, and more cognizant of the fact that there are much that first of all it's a complicated process, but there's a wide variety of different outcomes. And you say here that combining these three terms, so combining, where are we, goal independence, not having gold independence, but having instrument independence with non-nutter targeting meant that they had no understanding of money, which we've been talking about. Do we want to define non-nutter? You've, you've sort of said non-nutter targeting. You've already described that, right? Okay, yes. Yeah, so- Moving. But that's, you know, by and large, what we're saying here is, and this is not just the Bank of England. This is just the Bank of England catching up with a lot of other places, including the Federal Reserve had already operated in this fashion, which is we don't know how to anchor policy to any tangible outcomes because we don't know money. We don't do money anymore. So what we're doing is we're going to try to do a bunch of things and, you know, we'll target short-term interest rates like the federal funds in the U.S. and the Bank of England has its own benchmark rate. We'll kind of flush it into the system, these rate, these rate targets, and we'll see what comes out on the other side. And if what comes out on the other side is GDP growth that's steady and sustained and acceptable with low levels of inflation, we're simply going to presume that whatever happens in the monetary system, fine, it, because the, the end results are what we want them to be or close enough to what we want them to be that we're just going to assume that everybody's doing the job in the way it's supposed to be done when, in fact, you know, that kind of flying blind obviously raises enormous risks when something could go wrong, as Mervyn King was saying. Yeah, you could become an inflation nutter where you worry about excessive inflation or strange is upon strange, something could go wrong in the other direction. Then think, what would happen? I think he's throwing shade at the Germans, Jeff. I think yes. that's what he's doing. Oh, Absolute, the English oh, and the Germans. Absolutely doing, absolutely doing that. The Germans being... The Bundesbank being famous for its, and you can understand why, you know, 1923, famous for their focus on inflation, inflation, inflation to the exclusion of all of the possibilities. Rudy Havenstein, Havenstein, once again, coming back into the show. Jeff, one of the things in the 1970s, the monetary conditions got a wee out of a hand. And so the United States Congress said, you know what, why don't you come and explain what in the world you guys are doing around here? The Humphrey Hawkins testimony. So the chairman has to go up to Capitol Hill, chairman or chairwoman, twice a year, correct? Okay, super. And guess what? In Britain, they have a similar thing where the head of the Bank of England has to explain why inflation is above or below targets. Tell us a little bit about this delightful little tradition. Yeah, as we said, okay, the monetary policy, the MPC is free to set uh, the way in which the Central Bank of England is going to work. They flush that into the system and they see what comes out. If what comes out is a CPI measure that's above or below the exchequer's target by 1% in either direction, the, the law requires the head of the MPC to write a formal letter to the exchequer, the chancellor explaining why inflation is not within the target area. And so that's what happens. Whenever the, whenever the CPI deviates, I think the requirement is three months, and it might have been changed in the years since then. But anyway, 
there have been episodes where the the, uh, the governor of the Bank of England, as chairman of the MPC, writes these letters to the Chancellor of Exchequer and usually says, well, this is what we think is happening and that inflation is probably going to come back down, or this is what we think is happening, inflation is too low, we think it'll come back up. And the Exchequer is required to write a letter back which says, got it, buddy, thanks for the letter. So you give an example here of uh, May 2010 when Mervyn King wrote to Chancellor George Osborne and he said because inflation was above the target, but he said, don't worry, temporary factors, VAT rate rise, high fuel prices, duty increase for fuel, alcohol, tobacco, short-term movements, temporary. Okay, September 2010, following on with that, was the MPC's chief economist, Spencer Dale, and he made an interesting comment saying that, you know, there's also continuing constraints on the supply of bank lending. Very good. If you want to comment, let me know. Otherwise, we'll move on to more recent. Yeah, I think that one was the, that should have been the aha moment where, mm-hmm. because as we know, bank, credit, banking, money, all these things are tied together. And if your chief economist is saying, uh, we're seeing constraints in banking despite all these QEs and low interest rates and all these, you know, our instrument independent policies that we're coming up with don't seem to be working. That's really what he was kind of saying. And so the warning was, yeah, don't worry about this inflation. Maybe we should be worried about something else. And really what we're talking and this, we should probably raise this point too. The MPC, when it was originally put together, who was put on the who was put into these slots? Well, yeah, you know, the five the five slots come from the Bank of England, but even those five slots, who occupies these positions? They're not bankers, they're City not City of London, former bankers. Yeah. Russell that's what Napier. you would think. That's you know, people who no. know what the printing press is and they've been in the trenches of the banks. They they've worked the, the, the short rates desk or the repo desk at one of the one of the uh, major global euro dollar fir- No. They're all economists. They're all academic economists, PhDs. It's it and it's 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 it makes some sense when you understand what central banks have actually become or what they've forced been forced to become which is very different than a central bank. When you again this idea that we're going to create some some smoke and mirrors expectations policy, let the system itself work out the monetary details and then measure it at the end to see whether or not it all worked. That's not a central bank. That's something an economist would do with a bunch of regressions and DSGE models. So it makes sense why central banks over the years, particularly since the early 1970s, have been transformed from you know, being staffed by people who are bankers and no money and loan money and credit and that kind of thing to now almost exclusively, almost exhaustively exclusively, PhD economists. Because that's really what central banks have become. They're not central banks. They're not central banks by any legitimate any any legitimate definition of the term. You so yeah, in <laughs> 2010, you've got their chief economist saying, Something in banking, uh, you know, there's constraints in banking. That's already a huge red flag, but yet one of those that goes unappreciated. You end the essay that more letters will be forthcoming from the BOE. One was already inscribed back in May. But in neither direction do these economists adequately explain the longer run phenomenon. No mention of money nor banks. It's all theater. That is their chief instrument, the same which required that flexibility. Why? Mr. Greenspan now, September 5th, 1997. Quote, in the current state of our knowledge, money demand has become too difficult to predict. That's, That's it really me, it in a nutshell, right? Yeah. What we're talking about and 
why this particular episode with the Bank of England is, is kind of an important episode and unappreciated one is it, it was the completion of the transformation of a Bank of England from a bank into an economist club. <laughs> That's really what it is. And that when you understand that, that money is detached from this economist club, you, things really do start to make sense, only beginning with 2007 and 2008. You think of, well, how would a real central bank respond to 2007 and 2008? It was sure as hell wouldn't have been in the way that an economist club would, and except that's exactly what happened. You had these economists all around the world running their regressions, saying, "Well, if we lower the interest rate target a few basis points here or there, we expect that when everything flushes out the other end, things will go back to normal." When all the stuff in the middle that they ignore, or you know, they have no no ability to actually measure or determine, was going wrong and wrong in all sorts of different ways. There really is no way for them to get into the system and fix it in the way that Walter Badgett would have prescribed, because, again, they are not central banks. They are not central banks, certainly in the way the public understands them. And so bring that up to 2021. You know, here is the Bank of England writing a letter to the latest Chancellor of Exchequer saying, yes, we know inflation's high. It's transitory. But how would they know? They're just throwing darts. They're just throwing darts. You know, they're just throwing uh, throwing conjecture out there because based on their models, when in fact, when the set of letters that the, the uh, governor of the Bank of England wrote in 2018 said the exact opposite. Why is inflation too low? Well, we expect it to come up because of globally synchronized growth and everything else. So they write all these letters about inflation being either too high or too low with no idea about really why inflation is the way it is. And that's kind of what you would expect of a not central bank, central bank, unable to really get its hands dirty in the actual monetary business of the global marketplace. Today is Friday, the 13th of August, and in a couple of days will be the 50th anniversary of the gold window, the, the gold shock, Nixon going on TV. I believe that was also on a Sunday. Isn't that right, Jeff? Uh, I think so, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I will be holding a candlelight vigil. I hope you do the same. If the audience wants to join us online, they can do so at on YouTube and on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP and at will, Emil Kalinowski. I will have to say there will be no vigil for me because I do understand the truth that August 15th, 1971 actually did not have as much significance as has been given over the years. In fact, as we have discussed, and I think we were going, we intend on discussing at some point in detail, when you actually look at what happened in August of 1971, especially from the perspective of the Federal Reserve, you realize that mm, there's a lot that's misunderstood about August 1971 as well, only starting with the fact, as we talked about before, the Bretton Woods system had already broken down in most of its functional ways long, long before then. And really what Nixon did in, in that, that 50 years ago this Sunday was largely ceremonial. Jeff was reading the meeting minutes from the FOMC in and around the Nixon shock. And it's, we're going to talk about it next week, ladies and gentlemen. I think you're going to enjoy it. Jeff, have a wonderful weekend. I will talk to you next week. All right. Look forward to it, Emil.